Join me as I open our class time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have after what for many of us was a busy week, an emotional week with the national decisions that were made in our election. I just pray that you would help us to set aside everything to focus on you this morning. Lord, our, our minds are bombarded on a daily basis with countless things, not all of them bad, but Lord, it's often hard, and I know my own struggle this morning, to lay aside everything else to focus on you. There's so many things that vie for our attention, so many legitimate and good things that we have to deal with, but on this day, Lord, we want to be able to focus on you and your truth. I pray that you would help us to be receptive to the teaching of the Word of God today, both in the Sunday school class and then also in the main service. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunities to study your word. We're thankful for the teaching we receive. Lord, help us be thinking about how we can actually apply the truth to our lives. Lord, we would never want to be the type of church that is filled with knowledge that is not applied in our lives. Lord, you call that those who deceive themselves. We don't want to be deceived. We want to do the word, not just hear the word. So I pray that you would empower all of us by your spirit, to receive truth and apply truth in our lives. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as I mentioned, we are going to be resuming our study of 1 Peter. If you want to go ahead and open up 1 Peter chapter 1, if you don't recall, we are actually, the last time I taught, we finished verse 12, which means we're going to be at verse 13. And and even though it's a a single verse, that's going to be the entirety of our study this morning. As you would recall from our introductory lessons, but I will highlight it again, Peter begins his letter laying a foundation. When I was originally drawn to the book of First Peter, it was because of the very practical and real teaching on how to live day-to-day life, the very practical and applicational truth about how we relate to our employers, how we relate to our spouses, how we relate to our government, how we relate to sin. All these things are in First Peter, but before Peter starts into any of his injunctions, he really lays a theological foundation at the beginning of the book. And we spent several weeks covering that. He praised God for what was there, but all of the first 12 verses are really geared towards, they're really geared towards theology. He's letting people understand that God had always planned this salvation. It's something that had been described from the foundation of the earth. And he wants his hearers to reflect on truth before he ever tells them what to do. If you think about it, a lot of people in America tell you how to live your life. I remember it's one of those weird things, that, but I would be intrigued years ago. I'm not so intrigued anymore. All of these self-help gurus who would have infomercials, and for a few hundred dollars they would sell you these tapes. This was a long time ago. They were tapes. They would sell you these tapes that would transform your life. What's interesting is... A lot of people and a lot of churches have reduced Christianity to just that. It's just, okay, we'll live better, we'll do things differently, we'll we'll do these things. 
Peter doesn't want to give just morality lessons. He wants people to understand that this is motivated by proper theology. We're not just self-help people. Peter's not just another self-help guru trying to get people to live differently. He's a pastor with a heart for the Lord, an apostle who wants to make sure that all actions are motivated by truth. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. An unbeliever can do nice things. A lot of them do. An unbeliever could do something that for a Christian it would be obedience to Scripture and they're just doing it because. Peter doesn't want us to be confused in any way. He wants to make certain that we understand the foundation for everything that flows out of our lives. So in those first 12 verses, he's making it clear. He planned this. God did. God executed this. And when I say this, I mean this plan of salvation. Everything was originated with God, and it caused Peter to praise him for that salvation. And he goes through different parts of the truth to make certain this foundation is laid. And he even is pointing forward to a future reality. We have a certain experience of salvation now. Jesus died for sinners. We place our faith in him. We understand Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is alive. There's an ultimate fulfillment and a culmination of everything that is our salvation. In fact, sometimes scripture talks about salvation as what is now, and it is if you know Christ. But it also talks about it in a future sense, which is when we actually enjoy all the promises of God. If you think back and you think of your highlight Christian experience, your pinnacle moment, when you were on the mountaintop saying, thank you, Lord, eternity is going to dwarf that. The greatest joy you've ever had in Christ will pale in comparison to what it is to stand in his presence one day. So even while we rejoice in what we have now, and Peter wants us to be reinforced in our knowledge of what God has done There's a component where we're looking forward knowing that whatever the trials of this earth, one day it's going to be better. So he paints this picture of truth and what will be, and now he's going to bridge the gap because we're not there yet. Some of us may get there before others through our own death. The Lord may rapture the church at any moment. We would love if that occurred. But between what we experience at salvation and what we will experience in glory, we have this life to live out. So all of the foundational truths that Peter was emphasizing in these first few verses is really to encourage us, give us hope, but it's pointing us to living things differently. And the last time I taught, all of what I said was a brief overview of what I've taught in the past. The last time we taught, if you look at verse 10... It was just a reminder of the precious truth that we have in the Word of God. Verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This was just a reminder of the marvelous truth that we have the full revelation of Jesus Christ. The prophets of old 
knew some things and they searched and diligently studied, they didn't know what we have. They would have loved to have had the knowledge that we have. And the gospel was preached to us and uh, we could embrace it, we understand it, it's God's spirit working, and even the angels in the presence of God marvel. They wonder. They can't understand experientially what we get to experience. So Peter sets the stage with all this truth and just reminding us of all people in human history, we're some of the most blessed because we're on this side of the cross. We have this knowledge. We've seen the reality. And so verse 13 becomes a little bit of a transitional verse. He's going to have a lot of exhortations throughout the rest of the letter where he's telling us how we should live our lives. Again, not in a self-help, but in light of our salvation. That, that, that's always the connection here. Because of our salvation, do these things. A lot of people have wasted their lives trying to obey Scripture apart from being saved. And it's tragic. Because all they do is spin their wheels and they don't realize this isn't a how-to of how to get close to God. It's rather a circumstance of where once you have that salvation, once you have that relationship with Jesus Christ, now this flows from it. And verse 13 is sort of a preparatory exhortation. It is a practical application of truth. It is something that we're supposed to do. But this is sort of a bridge verse. We have this theological truth. We have these practical exhortations. And what we're learning in verse 13 is how do we put the truth and all that together so that we're prepared to obey. So follow along. I'm going to read verse 13 says this, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a relatively simple, short verse. For purposes of our discussion, I've just broken it down into a natural three-part outline that flows from the text itself. And I'm going to Phrase it this way, it's always hard to get the phraseology exactly right, but three requirements for putting your faith in action. If you believe all of the truth, and I pray that you do, that Peter has already told us, reminded us of things that we already believe, verse 13 is showing us these things are important to put it into action. So three requirements for putting your faith into action. The first requirement is this. You must set aside all distractions from your mind. You must set aside all distractions from your mind. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Now, therefore, obviously, is the connector. I don't think I need to belabor the point, but this is the tie-in. Because of all of that truth, therefore. Because of all of these things, now. All of truth should lead to all of what he's saying here. And he says it, and it's translated in this current language, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. I meant to bring a piece of paper with me that had some other versions, but some of your older versions would say, gird up the loins of your mind or something along those lines. The language here in English, misses something of the urgency of this text. 
it's not wrong, it's absolutely accurate, it's a good summation of what's being taught, but the original imagery that goes with this conveys something that is much more active. I think for most of us, if we say, prepare your minds, it's like, oh, Cal Stan, huh? Okay, that's what I'm going to do, I'm going to prepare my mind. But the imagery of this verse is much more active than that doesn't mean that you go running and prepare your mind. But the idea is there is something that takes your volition to accomplish this. I'm going to read a couple of verses that borrow this imagery, but it gives you an idea of where this is coming from. 1 Kings 18.46 is imagery. And again, this is the kind of stuff that a Jewish writer would have had in mind, and the original Greek would have conveyed this. There's this illustration in 1 Kings 18, 46. It says, Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. I borrow that because it still uses the language of girded up your loins. This has to do with the clothes that people used to wear. People wore long, flowing robes. They would walk and they would have something on. I have seen... Protestant pastors that wear robes, but they always have pants on underneath. But this is a different era when people wore that and that was their garment. So what would happen if you had long flowing things around your feet and you had to move? You're going to trip. I mean, you think about it. If you ever wrap something around, you try and walk and you're stepping on it. And so what would happen to enable someone, either in a military context or in like Elijah, where you had to get from point A to point B, you would take and you would wrap up the robes and you would tuck them into your belt. In other words, you'd have a belt around it, you'd tack them up, and then, guess what? Your legs are unhindered and you can motor. Soldiers would do that as well. In fact, soldiers was probably the emphasis behind Paul saying something very similar in Ephesians 6.14. You can just write it down, Ephesians 6.14. He says in this in the context of spiritual warfare, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. But it's this same imagery. So the original language Peter is saying, do something sort of like that. You're getting ready for battle. You're getting ready for serious activity. If you think again of the imagery of running, you've got to get rid of any entanglements. You've got to set aside anything that's going to trip you up. I think that's exactly what he's talking about in the relationship of our mind. Because our minds can trip us up. You might find it hard to believe, but when I teach, a lot of times Hebrews comes to my mind. Because I spent so much time there, but as I was reading and studying this, turn to Hebrews 12. It's not a very far turn. You go left in your Bible. Because I spent a lot of time talking about Hebrews chapter 12, but it's very similar in terms of its imagery. Verse 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see this consistent teaching of Scripture. And in this context, Peter is narrowing in He's focusing and he's saying a lot of what you have to accomplish starts in your mind. It's a battle of 
the mind. If you want to obey, if you want to follow Christ, and we're going to see, believe it or not, in the original language, this is a command, but it's not in the imperative. You're going to see that in a moment where it talks about hope. But this is a command, but this isn't even the main focus of this verse. This is just a preparatory part. If you think about it, this week was a perfect illustration of some of the things that can distract our minds. I know, for me, it was a relief when Tuesday came and went. Because I was tired of it. Couldn't turn on the TV set without there being bombardments of ads back and forth. Even playing, you know, I occasionally will play games on an app. The commercials in there were political commercials. It's like, what? Wait, this is a game. What do you, you can't get away from it. And it's very easy, particularly in the context of our society, to get wrapped up in those things. In fact, I think it's fair to say a lot of Christians, not throwing rocks, it's just reality, a lot of Christians spend a lot more time in the last three or four months thinking about the election than they did thinking about the Lord. We all can be guilty of it. It can grip us, it can turn us aside, but it can be any area of life. It can be video games. It could be distractions like that. It can be distractions of sports. I don't personally have it, but I know Facebook is a big distraction for a lot of people. Any one of these things in and of themselves, it doesn't mean it's sinful, but we need to be mindful that all these things can trip us up and keep us from focusing on what's right and what's true. So when Peter says, prepare your minds for action, he's talking about something that takes affirmative effort. I run, Pastor Steve ran for years. When you go running, you make preparations. You get your special shoes out. I have special running shoes. I have special socks, because you've got to run with special socks, special shorts. The point is, I take the time. I'm not going to go run out in my work boots. That'd be stupid. Unless you wanted blisters and you wanted to be hurt and all those other things. It's something similar. You've got to prepare. You've got to take this seriously. Distractions don't go away just by osmosis. You have to plan. You have to apply. I know for me at various times, there have been times where I had to just, okay, I'm not going to watch sports for a while. Every one of us has different distractions, but you've got to set aside the distractions from your mind if you're serious about walking with the Lord. I can normally track when I'm, if I start reflecting on struggles, when I'm, my mind's wandering, I'm not thinking the right things, I can go back and replay what happened the prior two, three weeks, and I can make up the difference because I've just been distracted. I've been wallowing in the wrong things, thinking about the wrong things. So for all of us, Peter is making it clear, you've got to take affirmative steps to get control of your mind. You've got to take affirmative steps. You can't, nobody else can do it. I can't do it for you. You have to honestly look in the mirror and see where the dangers are for you and set those things aside. Peter's second exhortation is really in line with the first. So the first point for putting your faith in action, you must set aside all distractions from your mind. The second is this, you must exercise self-control over your thoughts. You must exercise self-control over your thoughts. What 
Peter says, as translated in my version, keep sober in spirit. Now, this term originally did refer to actual sobriety in the context of don't be drunk, but that's not how Peter is using it. The word came to reflect and communicate a sobriety of spirit, a sobriety of the mind. An exercising of self-control over the thought processes so that you are purposeful and serious with what you're thinking. It's reflecting, again, on effort. Something you have to do. This is not passive. This isn't something where you can just go sit and wait and hope. No, you've got to affirmatively take steps to bring about this result. This is all about self-control. This is all about self-discipline. And all of these things go hand in hand. Because generally when distractions get the upper hand in our lives, it's because we're not exercising self-control. We're not taking affirmative steps. One of the weaknesses in my walk is I don't know enough Scripture by memory. I didn't have a wana when I was a kid. I did not make it a a habit of memorizing big chunks of Scripture. But there are some things I know. One of them is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Peter is not trying to exhort us to flesh it out. He's letting us know this is where our spiritual reality coincides with our actual struggles. In this context... It's just reflecting on the fact that we should be purposeful people. I do quite a bit of counseling. At different times it comes in waves. But one of the tendencies I see, and I'm guilty of this myself, using it from the illustration of what I interact with people who are struggling, is quite often people have a notion that all of my problems are being caused by forces beyond my control. I can't do anything about it. This isn't really my fault. I don't know how many times I've heard something along those lines. In a marital context, it's, I would be the ideal husband, but look at her. (laughs) You know, I want to be a submissive, godly wife, but... But it goes beyond the finger pointing. If we're not careful, we actually can believe that we don't have any control over things. Let me tell you what you do have control over. Because you're right, you don't have control over daily life. We didn't have control over the election. We didn't have control over a lot of things. You have control over how you think about those things. You have the ability to exercise self-control. You have the ability to exercise self-control over your mind. You're not just flapping about with no hope. If you're a believer, God has given you His Spirit. His Spirit indwells you. And one of the byproducts, one of the fruits of His indwelling presence is self-control. That's why Christians have to be very careful with words like addiction. Such things can be very real. There can be physiological addictions to drugs and things like that. But quite often Christians throw that word around just to mean I'm not exercising self-control like I should. And I haven't been for years, so I'll call it an addiction. Again, I'm not minimizing very real addiction. I'm just saying some Christians can get lazy in their thinking if they're not careful. 
The Bible never commands us to do something that God does not equip us to do. So when Peter says to us, keep sober in spirit, we have the ability to do that. But it takes effort. And I have to tell you, when it comes to issues of the mind, that's the hardest issue for me. Because nobody knows what thoughts are rambling around in my skull except me. This normally is a battle you fight daily on your own. So let me encourage you, pray for one another. Even if you don't know what other people are struggling with, you know your own struggles. You know how hard it is for you to make it from the time you put your feet on the floor in the morning until you lay your head on the pillow at night. You know bizarre things go through our heads. Unless I'm the only one. So this is a battle for all of us, and Peter is making it clear. I mean, he's going to tell us about daily practical living, but if you're not doing these things, you're not ready for that. So the first two requirements are fairly straightforward. Set aside the distractions from your mind. You may need to stop doing certain things. You may need to close down your Facebook. You may need to get off of Twitter. You may need to stop going to the news. You may need too fast in relation to something you expose yourself to. Pastor Steve and I have a lot of discussions about sports, and we both know sports can be a true idol in our hearts. And we've compared notes. There are times where we have to change our viewing habits because who should know better, but we still have that struggle. You know what your struggles are. Set aside the distractions. Exercise self-control. Over what you're thinking. And the final point is this. You must focus on the outcome of your salvation. You must focus on the outcome of your salvation. And I'm going to develop this a little bit. Because that might not jump out at you. But this is the imperative command of this verse. Fix your hope completely. On the grace to be brought to you. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to reread it. But I'm going to read the other parts. Therefore. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the centerpiece of this verse. Fix your hope. This really is telling us what should be the outcome of setting aside distractions. What should be the outcome of exercising self-control. Having taken all of these steps, now we point ourselves in the right direction. And it says, fix your hope completely. The idea here is that everything goes towards this. We are to zero in. And it's interesting because what we're to zero in on, we can't experience right at this moment. He says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought. Scholars debate, but the reality is I think this is pointing forward. And as I have alluded to before, and this is one of those times where my limitations as a teacher and my limitations with language make this a challenge, but what I have in my mind is this. We are standing here surrounded by a fallen world. God saved us, He redeemed us, and we praise the Lord for that. And I alluded to this at the beginning, one day we're going to be with Him for all eternity. 
He's going to return for his church. If we're alive then, the rapture is going to be a stupendous thing. But either way, one day we're going to be with him. Here's the problem. In between here and there, things are rough. You get leaks in your kitchen. You get cancer. You have loved ones that die. You lose your job. You have financial struggles. People dislike you and despise you and what you believe in because of Christ. Again, you get that joy at that moment of salvation and way down there is the culmination of the grace. But it's this messy part in between here and there. That's where we're called to live out our faith. And I think what Peter is doing is not saying, pretend all of this in the middle doesn't exist. You know, for years, at different points in history, there have been odd groups of wrong-thinking Christians who would go and sit on a mountaintop because somebody decided the Lord was returning, so they'd just go sit there. None of that is what Peter's talking about. He's not talking about pretend like all the mess in between doesn't exist. What he's saying is the only way to get through the mess is to keep your eye on the prize. That goes back again to Hebrews chapter 12. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. I think this is a synonymous thought. To get through the muck and the mire that is daily life. Part of the muck and mire is external to us. It's just a sin-filled world. And part of the muck and mire is the residual parts of our flesh that we're tripping over and trying to get through. To deal with all of that, you always have to keep your eye and your confidence on Christ and on what will be. First John 3, 2 has this statement. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. That, that's a future point. That's a future hope. That's what point Peter is saying, fix your hope over there. Stated another way, though, what he's really saying is at all times, when you've set aside the distractions and you've got your mind under control, direct all of your thoughts to Jesus. He is the hope. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What He promised, He will do. Now, I told you already, I had election fatigue. And then when I stayed up till 3 in the morning on Tuesday night, Monday morning, I had real fatigue to go with it. And it was an unusual election for a lot of reasons. I did not talk about the election per se. I don't talk about who I vote for. I think Pastor Steve, I've heard him say, and I, I've got a lot of wisdom from Steve of how to navigate tricky issues. Because as you remember, for most of my life I wasn't a pastor, I was a lawyer. Lawyers just talk. Steve has shown me restraint. I've learned a lot from him, and I look up to him because of his wisdom in those areas. I've heard him say that if somebody comes and talks to him individually, one-on-one, -on -one, and asks, he'll tell him about his thoughts, but he's never going to do that from a position of leadership. And I think that's correct. 
But what I will say to you is this. I think, and I've alluded to this before, I think I've said it directly before, I just don't remember if I said it here or somewhere else. For whatever reason, American elections bring out some very sad and negative parts of Christianity. And believe it or not, I think the worst parts of Christianity that pop up in elections come from a neglect of what is taught in this verse. Because unfortunately, and I have been guilty of this too many times in my adult life, please understand I'm not pointing fingers at you, I've pointed fingers at me, thankfully I'm getting better at this, is that over and over Christians want to place their hope in a different outcome of an election. If only this candidate gets voted in, then whew. I know more now than I used to know, but the reality is that's a fool's game. The Bible never tells us to place our hope in one more politician, regardless of what party they're from. If we're thinking correctly, which we have to work hard to do, what we realize is God's in charge of raising leaders up and taking them down. He's going to raise up who he wants to lead. He's going to take down who he doesn't want to lead. I'll be 50 years old next month. I recounted all the presidential elections and God doesn't listen to me very much. Shocking. But coming out of this type of season, I hear and I read and I see that I think some Christians have the wrong view of this election. And they think now things are going to be okay. Can I tell you? Things are never going to be okay until the Lord returns. Might there be a decision or two that we're happier about than otherwise? Maybe. But it would be foolish for believers and unbiblical to suddenly say we're going to place all our faith in our government now because we like it. We never do that. Our hope has to be completely in the ultimate fulfillment of our salvation in Jesus Christ, no matter what else is going on. That applies to people living in dictatorships right now who know Christ. They have the same responsibility. You look around the world, there are a lot of Christians living in horrific circumstances. Some in war-torn areas. Some being massacred for their faith. Some in... Countries that are repressive, that just bury them underground for naming the name of Jesus. I've shared publicly from this teaching avenue that I think things are going to get worse for Americans and get worse for Christians. And this election doesn't change my thoughts on that. Maybe it kicks it down the road a couple of years, but that's all. But the reality is... We can't get caught up in our day-to-day secular affairs so much that we lose sight of what we're about. My big fear for this election or any other election with Christians is that based on what you hear some people say, you'd think that our goal as Christians is to reform American government. But that's not. Our goal is to walk in obedience. Our goal is to live for Christ, and the way we do that starts with our mind.
And I would encourage you to reflect on your own heart after the election. Think it through. Where is your hope? Make sure it's fixed completely on the grace that's coming in Jesus Christ, on Him, and not on anything in this world. This is the battleground for us. As I look at the world, I always analyze things in relation to Scripture. I shouldn't say that. I don't always analyze it. It's a little bit overstatement because when I'm watching a football game, I'm not thinking of Scripture. I'm thinking of the football game. But in the big picture, God has impressed upon me the necessity of looking at things biblically. Debbie and I have not been perfect parents. We've made many mistakes. But one thing we have done is tried to always convince our girls that you have to look at everything from a biblical worldview. You have to look at the big picture. You can't detach what's going on in the world in day-to-day life from the picture of Scripture. And Scripture makes it very clear that while God alone is sovereign and all-powerful, there is a very real adversary named Satan, referred to as the devil, who wants to destroy us. Every era is different. But as I'm sitting here and I have an iPhone in front of me and an iPad in front of me and those are like extensions of my hand, what I see, God can use for good. What I also know is Satan can use all of these things as distractions. So for us, we need to be careful. We need to be alert. We need to be aware that the battle for our minds is relentless and the bombardment that we see from society, I think, in large part is satanic. Not that an individual person knows they're being motivated by Satan, but we are surrounded by a world system peddling Satan's message and we have to be careful. So from this morning... It's all about how we think. That's the battle. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us and for the protection you give us in your word and by your spirit. And Lord, we thank you for the protection of the church where we can come together with other like-minded believers and to be encouraged and built up. Lord, I know the daily struggles I have to control the thoughts that go through my head. And I don't doubt, Lord, that the brothers and sisters that are in this room with me have the same struggles. Lord, I pray that you'll alert us to the need to fight a battle a battle in our minds where we're the only person that knows whether we're doing well or whether we're doing poorly. Lord, we want to be able to live out Scripture. Help us to live out this portion of Scripture. Help us to take whatever steps are necessary to get rid of distractions, to help us to exercise self-control so that we can truly fix our hope 
and our hearts and our minds on what is true and what is eternal. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.